Hello everyone. Before the podcast starts, I wanted to let you all know about the Handmade Network Wheel Reinvention Jam. It's like a game jam, but instead of games, we'll be taking a closer look at everyday software that we use on our computers to reimagine it in a better form. It might be a utility that breaks, a missing set of features or designs that would dramatically improve workflow, or maybe just a program with a broken, incomprehensible design. This jam is your chance to replace all of those things with something fresh and new. The jam is starting on September 27th, 2021, and will be lasting for one week, ending on October 3rd. For more information, go to handmade.network jam. Hope to see you then. And with that, hope you enjoy the episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Handmade Network podcast. I'm Ryan Flurry, and today I'm joined by networking engineer Tyler Leeds, and again by Rudy Fail, a coworker of Tyler, former podcast guest, and community member. Tyler and Rudy both work for Automatic, the company behind WordPress. Tyler runs on an extremely small team, a massive network for Automatic, and I wanted to get him on the podcast to pick his brain with Rudy's help about networking. In episode 15, we explored the web's problems and future with Ben and Asaf. The web lays on top of the networking stack, but Handmade Network is about digging deeper. We need to understand the lower levels of the tech we work with to empower us even when working at a higher level. I'm so excited to have Tyler and Rudy with us to discuss this because I'm an absolute noob at this stuff, so I'm ready for my course. So that all being said, welcome to the podcast, guys. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having us. Yeah, yeah, it's great to have you guys. So I wanted to get started just talking about Tyler's background. I'm not familiar with the path that would lead someone to actually get to the status of a networking engineer or honestly, what that largely entails. How did you get started? What interested you in the field? And what were the things you could do to actually start tinkering with this kind of stuff? I was always kind of the the family, probably like a lot of your listeners, uh, I was always the family computer guy. So I sort of had um, an ancillary sort of exposure to networking anyway, but this was, uh, you know, back in the Windows 3.1 days or, or the DOS days where you sort of had to pull teeth to get anything to talk together. I, I think actually my first exposure to networking was probably trying to get Command and Conquer to talk to the uh, to the other Command and Conquer uh, users and play some video games, which uh, is probably a pretty good way to get going. In high school, I actually participated in a, uh, a pilot project from Cisco Systems, and, and ended up coming out of high school with a CCNA, which is a you know a, a reasonably beginner, but at the time much more valuable certification in network engineering. It's kind of the rest is history from there. Awesome. What what goes into a CCNA? You said is that yeah? So that's a Cisco Certified Networking Associate. So it's a it's sort of a manufacturer driven certification regime, much like, you know, the uh, the Microsoft MCSE, I'm trying to think of other ones like uh, Juniper has some certifications. It is essentially a, a delineator that you know the minimum amount about networking. But it's, you know, at the time, I think perhaps it was more valuable than it is today, simply because just, you know, the world has become much more networked. Not that the, the quality of the certification is degraded, more so that the, the world has demands now a higher level of knowledge in order to to really make it your your job. I see. So that's certification regarding to just plain knowledge or was there any engineering going on all at that point or 
Was it purely just getting a feel for the field? It's just more or less getting a feel for the field. It has uh, a high degree of uh, sort of manufacturer specific, as in Cisco specific lock in. But I guess the advantage is, is that Cisco is is to this day still the eight hundred pound gorilla in networking. Uh, and so you know, even even being um, Cisco specific knowledge is still a pretty good way to to get your foot in the door. You know, I, I subsequently moved out of that, and I've gone into um, you know, sort of all different types of networking. I spent a lot of time doing uh, firewall and load balancer networking. I've built long distance fiber halls in uh, the Arctic. I've done SCADA networking, low level SCADA networking for uh, power plants, done some stuff in aerospace and a lot of work in the medical field. And uh, now here I'm over here at Automatic. That's awesome. Uh, so that, that entails like setting up the physical infrastructure for these projects that need multiple systems c- to communicate more or less. Is that the idea? Yeah, uh, I mean, my uh, my particular specialty is ultra high reliability networking. So, you know, I've sort of specialized in my career in building systems that essentially do not fail. To that end, I've spent a lot of time in finance and and uh, power control systems and healthcare to basically build networks that don't go down. In in that purview, sort of, I've covered all the way from managing engineering contracts to to physically put up towers and and lay fiber on it all the way up to high level routing systems and you know monitoring systems fascinating yeah so you you have a really good view into the lowest possible levels of how all this stuff works which is which is awesome so how does that translate into the work you're doing now for automatic is it pretty much the same idea just different problem no automatic is an interesting one because you know my day-to-day job at automatic involves managing a lot of internet connectivity. We have uh, 28 data centers worldwide from which we distribute. Gee, I, I'm not even sure what it is, Rudy. Uh, we're 300 gigabits per second all day, every day on transit and probably twice that on pairing. So yeah. we're probably close to a terabit per second sort of constant data output. And this kind of sort of uh, large scale internet engineering is, uh, is, is probably new to me at Automatic. I've done internet engineering, but perhaps not at the scale before. And there was a, there, you know, you, 20 years into my career and there was a, uh, there was a, uh, quite a steep learning curve coming here. I want to, I want to get to the details of how, of how you actually go about making a system reliable. What, like, what are the characteristics that make one of these systems reliable versus unreliable and what sort of guarantees do you have to meet in order to ensure reliability? Is it same across all the problems, or is it, 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 it? I'm assuming automatic has presented a different set of constraints. Yeah, I'm curious about the kind of constraints that go into it. Yeah, we're heavily focused on on redundancy. So, like uh, for example, all peering connections are, are link redundant, meaning that they have at least two links or more, and um, they're diversified geographically. So, like. If one fiber gets cut or something goes down, you have a secondary interface and link to fall back on. And then down to the data center level, each and every server, I mean, we have thousands of servers, each and every server goes to two separate switches, which go to two separate aggregate switches, which go to two separate routers. So everything is at least uh, redundant there. And then also in terms of the data centers themselves are redundant and they're all mirrors of one another. So like, for example, um, pretty recently we had a cooling issue at our data center in LA where they lost power, which uh, resulted in lost cooling and all temperatures started to increase. I think, uh, what do we got, Tyler? Like maybe a thousand, maybe like 1200 servers in Burr. 
Um, something like that. Yeah. Something like that. And, uh, and so all these temperatures are increasing 20 degrees, 30 degrees, 40 degrees Celsius. And we were able to just take down, you know, essentially the entire data center offline and shift all traffic. And so like from the systems perspective, we're involved in the actual servers themselves, like ensuring that we migrate all of the incoming traffic to, well, the applications themselves, like if it's a if it's a master database or something like that, getting that over so that reads don't happen to a center that's down. And then Tyler and his team, their end would be helping us or entirely taking over shifting that traffic so that uh, folks aren't routed to a data center that's inoperable. I see. Assuming I were to send some data over the network, I'd be following a protocol, especially over the web, like TCP or something. I have that written down, so we'll talk about, make sure that I have no uh, misconceptions about that later, but, and maybe we'll get into it right now if I say something ridiculous. But so assuming I, you know, send some, send some bits somewhere, if one of these data centers goes down, presumably my information would be lost along the way. If, if it's going through that data center and that, and you, you guys are in charge of taking that data center down and saying, no, actually the connection has moved to this to this other data center over here. If I send bits through that path, they'll either never be received or I'll never get something back from that. So I would never get like the acknowledgement signal or something. So then I'd have to resend it and that would route to a different data center at that point. Is that sort of the idea? Is that correct from a high level perspective or where am I going wrong if, if, if at all? <laughs> At the very lowest level, that's basically how it works. The web is, for the most part, built on TCP, um, which is what we would call a connection-oriented protocol, which is to say it opens a channel, it maintains the channel, and it uh, error checks the channel. In the event of a network failure, you know, uh, a network engineer like me would, would try to redirect you to a different data center. Um, in our case, uh, any service that one of our users interact with is is executed by way of of what's called anycast which is anycast in in ip version 4 doesn't actually exist it's actually a if you if you google it it's more of a convention than than any anything anyone actually tried to design and what it is is it's essentially using the nature of bgp and which is the protocol that underpins the internet to basically advertise the same address the same ip address out of multiple different locations and in our case, you know, some of our global IP addresses uh, we'll advertise out of all 28 data centers. And then we leave it up largely to your individual internet service provider to direct that traffic to the nearest data center. And a large part of my day uh, is taken up ensuring that that actually happens. You know, users in certain Asia Pacific nations will get directed to California because there's a subsea cable that goes to California and you know the routing protocol or, or the BGP will basically get tweaked in such a way that it ends up in California. And so we, we have to basically kind of discourage that because we don't want users in, in Asia Pacific going to California and having really high latency and, and, a, and a bad user experience. So you know a lot of my job is to basically try and discourage those users from going to California and, and encourage their networks to, to send them to maybe one of our points of presence in Singapore or Hong Kong or, or Japan. And it's a constant plate balancing act because these folks, they, they look at these, they have dozens and dozens of these dashboards that they've built and every, and 
all sorts of alerting set up and they're constantly looking at these dashboards, looking at alerts and adjusting traffic real time so that everything balances out and that and, and so that everybody has a good experience. And then they look long term too. Like, uh, for example, we're growing now and we were looking at, we are deploying some new point of presences. We were going to do it this year, but due to the chip shortage right now, um, all that's kind of getting pushed to next year. But we're looking at like, I think three new point of presence locations to start. And I mean, so like it's it's this constant balancing act between like making sure everybody has a good experience day to day and then like also looking at our traffic uh, on the overall network and figuring out like which locations are going to require more peering, more transit or an entirely new data center. Yep. If we do the redirect, so if we have a failure, like a flat out break event, uh, somebody cuts a fiber, something along those lines, there there is some data loss incurred. In in networking terms, we call that convergence. So there is a convergence time associated with the basically the network relearning the path. So if you were in, for example, uh, you you mentioned uh, you're in the Pacific Northwest, you would probably under normal stand under normal standards get directed to our Seattle data center. If somebody say cut a cut a line into our Seattle data center, you know within perhaps 30 seconds at the at the outside uh maybe within depending on the the type of failure within sub second will basically your your ISP will basically go I can't reach this IP via this path they'll it's called a, they'll poison the path which is say this is no longer a good path to this IP address or this prefix is more more appropriately and then send that data to perhaps San Jose or uh or Los Angeles or uh Denver I see. Okay, that makes sense. And did you say that ISPs are receiving information and sending information to multiple, to and from multiple sources at one time, and it's up to the ISP to dedupe that information largely, if depending on if it's yes. So, um, so for example, in in our specific case, an automatic specific case, and and our our content delivery network is is runs essentially the same as any of the major content providers. So Facebook, Google will advertise the same prefix, which is to say the same block of IP addresses from multiple locations. And a given ISP may see 27 paths to one of our prefixes. And based on a a series of rules in BGP and the router, the way routers work in general, it will pick one of those paths as the best path, as what it considers to be the best path. And BGP is an interesting one because BGP, which is, again, it's the protocol sort of underpins the internet, is sort of light on metrics. It doesn't give you a ton of information by which to make of an informed decision as to what is actually constitutes the best path to any given prefix. You can extend BGP sort of ad infinitum. It's 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 very a very a very extensible protocol, but the actual path picking is, is I'm not going to call it rudimentary. I'm perhaps inelegant and, and and doesn't give you a ton of uh, useful metric information. Again, sort of a lot of my job is is involved with finessing what things I do have control over to encourage various ISPs to make what I would consider the right decision. You know, and that's all part of optimization and trying to give our users the best experience. Okay, yeah. You've mentioned BGP a couple of times and understand a little bit. I'm assuming TCP is a higher higher level concept than BGP. BGP is probably like, it sounds like it's the lower level informa- set of rules that controls, I mean, exactly what you described, I guess, which is determining which route to take and then 
TCP is a layer of abstraction on top of that, which is, you know, breaking things into connection or abstracting over the idea of multiple routes with a connection and, you know, multiple bits sometimes getting there or something being considered a packet or something like that. Like that's, is that the correct layering there? So, yeah. So, I mean, um, BGP is a, is a routing protocol. TCP is, is essentially a connection management protocol or connection management system. To that end, uh, TCP has utterly no idea of the underlying routing beneath it. You know, and TCP is usually paired with IP. It, it doesn't have to be technically, but it like, you know, the almost, I don't think I've ever seen it really paired with anything else. The TCP IP suite basically, again, doesn't have much in the way of, of path finding. It just simply knows I transmit, you know, ones and zeros or a packet out this port and sort of gets there and then something comes back and then uh, I decode it and I, I create a virtual connection by doing that. And, and it, it TCP and IP basically manage it based on like sequence and act numbers and say, okay, I've sent 10 packets, send me back acknowledgement that you got my packets. And if I don't get it back, I'll send 10 more, resend the same 10. To that end, I spend, I don't, I, as a network engineer, I actually don't spend a ton of my time dealing with TCP. Uh, that's, that's much more perhaps in Rudy's ballpark. In, in in this regard, I've spent a lot of time dealing with TCP in other in other lifetimes and other jobs, but um, TCP is is sort of above where I operate. And, and what I operate on is is BGP, which is BGP is an interesting beast because people tend to think the internet runs on IP and it doesn't. The internet actually runs on BGP, which is a a routing protocol. It's perhaps uh, important if you're going to think about BGP to understand the concept of an autonomous system. So we think of various organizations and various entities as what's called an ASN or an autonomous system number. In our case, in automatic case, our, our, our autonomous system number is, uh, is 2635. You know, uh, Amazon's a 16509. You end up uh, learning all these ASNs as a network engineer and, and start, you know, thinking it's like the, the matrix where you start seeing only seeing the code. BGP, basically what happens is, is your organization and in our case, Automatic, or let's say Google or Amazon, has an autonomous system number. And the ASNs are, are handed out by the, the Regional Internet Authority, the RIR for your, for your piece of the world. So it'd be like Aaron or uh, APNIC or AFRNIC or RIPE in, uh, in Europe. And what they do is essentially manage the global stock of IP addresses and the global stock of autonomous system numbers. You will, as an organization, um, apply for an autonomous system number. And if you're sort of granted, uh, you know, the, the blessing of an ASN, you'll get your ASN and, 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 and get an IP address uh, or get a block of IP addresses. And th those, that block of IP addresses is called a prefix. Block of IPs defined by a prefix net number, a net mask, which is essentially how many bits of the 32-bit IP address you own, right? Uh, so the 32-bit IP address, if your net mask is 24, what you really own is eight bits. Uh, you know, the, what, what's left over from the mask. You own 256, 255 IP addresses. The ASBG, what BGP does is essentially you form adjacencies over network links with other networks. You'll have a physical connection to another network. It might be in an internet exchange or it might be a direct 
you know, a fiber line uh, inside a data center or what have you. And you will basically configure BGP on your router to talk to BGP on their router. And then you will set up a series of rules on your router to say what prefixes you're going to export to them and what prefixes you're going to accept from that other person. And then your router will basically take that information it receives from BGP and and make a decision as to what the best path is. And, and then you on your router, you can make, you know, you can customize the pathing to your heart's content. On uh, other people's routers, again, it's it's spooky action at a distance a little mm-hmm. bit. You're kind of you're kind of nudging things and poking them to try and and do do that. Strictly speaking, BGP has a single metric and the single metric is AS path length. And so what happens is if you receive a prefix from one AS, from one autonomous system number, and you re-advertise that to another autonomous system number, you basically tack your ASN in the path. And so you will have, if you, you know, if you log into a router and I look at, say, you know, uh, an ISP in uh, the Czech Republic, I might you know, we don't have uh, we don't have a, a pop in the Czech Republic, so I wouldn't have direct connectivity to that ISP. Most likely, I'll reach them through one of our major network service carriers that we communicate with, and so I might see two, three, four AS numbers stacked on top of each other. And, and, and what that says is that I can reach you know whatever prefix by going to this provider, who'll hand it to this provider, who'll hand it to that provider, who'll hand it to the end users company. Interestingly, once it's inside, once you hand your traffic to that uh, that AS, that autonomous system, um, it really is what it says. It's an autonomous system, and there's no you have no control over which way it goes. So, so for global providers, you could hand them the traffic in North America, and they could decide, hey, we're going to route that through China and uh, Japan, and you know, back up through Europe. And one of the interesting things is the quickest way from Amsterdam to Tokyo is through Seattle. Yeah. And that's, I think that's kind of the core to understanding the internet is that the routing decisions are basically based on these stacks of ASN numbers. And once it gets into an ASN, we're, we're essentially relying on the network engineers in that ASN to make sure it crosses their network efficiently. Uh, Sometimes it does. Sometimes it doesn't. I see. That makes, that makes sense. So one of these ASNs, that corresponds with presumably i mean so there's every time you see like an ipv4 address it's like four numbers from 0 to 255 i'm assuming those correspond directly to the bytes inside of the 32 bit ip address and an asn would be like the first n bits of that so you said i don't remember what number you said was automatics but it's like those would be the first like couple of bytes or something uh, no actually so asns and ip addresses are totally divorced the first, you know, so if, if we're advertising a prefix, which is a slash 24, the the first 24 bytes are what's called the network routing information or NLRIs. And the last eight bits are are up to us, we'll say. We can ass- assign it to whatever we like. So that slash 24 is what we hand out. Now on the internet, actually, the, 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 the smallest network you can advertise is a slash 24 is 24 bytes of 24 bits of information. You can advertise anywhere between 0 and 24, but you can't advertise a 25 or a 26 or a 29 or what have you. Just to, in order to keep the the global BGP table which holds all the IP addresses to a manageable size. As it stands right now, 
the BG global BG BGP tables, I think about 835,000 IP for V4 addresses. And every time something happens, we have to recompute the best path to all of them. And so it gets, uh, it gets sort of onerous. Yeah. So an ASN number is something you're assigned uh, and then your ASN will advertise any IP address, which is kind of one of the core, we'll probably get to this later, is one of the core problems with the internet. Essentially that. You'll, you, we have an ASN and we'll, we'll, we'll just advertise any number of IP addresses, hopefully the ones that have been assigned to us. Yeah, don't forget to get to that later either, because that's uh, that's actually super funny, because if we talk about folks that have like the power to break the internet at any time, it's definitely network engineers. <laughs> maybe maybe Tyler has a story to share. But uh, back to the prefix thing. <laughs> so... So I, and I think I talked about this before briefly, but just to recap, like a forward slash 32 is, is a single IP address, right? Because it, it covers all the, all the bits. Yeah. And then like uh, Tyler said, a forward slash 24 is 256 total IPs uh, of which you can use 254. And then that becomes orders of magnitude larger as you get closer to zero. So like, for example, a forward slash 16 is 65,500. Sixty-five thousand five hundred thirty-four usable IPs, thirty-six total, and but yeah, it's I mean, so that's it's massive, and uh, I think I was talking a little bit about like the IP space that we have at Automatic, and and we got it in like weird ways over time, but we we have like massive IP space now, and I know like a lot of the major providers do, and because uh, V4 is such a finite resource and pretty much out at this point, you could sell like a forward slash twenty-four. Or, I mean, folks are constantly reaching out to like uh, folks that have lar- larger prefixes available in their pool to just lease the space, right? They don't even, it's almost like a digital commodity. They don't even yeah. want to purchase it outright. They're just like, hey, can we use this, this block of, IP, of IPv4? Yeah, absolutely. It's a bit like, uh, I've explained it to other companies, like it's a bit like land in Manhattan. Once upon a time, you could ask for it and somebody would just give it to you. And and that that time has long since passed. And you know every square inch of Manhattan is owned by somebody. And but it doesn't mean you can't buy a house in Manhattan. You certainly can. It's just you have to now now the the market has become private as opposed to a public market. So the IPv4 we are we are essentially out of IPv4 space. There is essentially no more left to assign. But it doesn't mean it's not it's not available. It just means now it's a now now it's become a commodity that you trade and and buy and and. Uh, you know, it will probably get progressively more expensive as time gets on. Should I have purchased IPv4 space instead of Bitcoin, Tyler? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I, Bitcoin is. Uh, I'm I, just if you had a crystal, if you had a crystal ball, Bitcoin's better. I think if you're looking for a long-term investment, IPv4 space is probably not a bad one. Yeah, uh, digital squatting isn't cool. Uh, we need that space. So. <laughs> Don't be a jerk. But um, yeah. So do you understand kind of the concept of, of subnetting, Ryan? Yeah, I think so. So if you have a reservation of like slash n bits, that basically means you have 32 minus n, 2 to the 32 minus n possible bits of, of all of those bits could define an IP address uh, or the rest of an IP address. And then that is the thing that I'm trying to figure out is, so you you have that reservation of space now. How are the IP addresses themselves partitioned out? You said you can like basically advertise any of them. Yeah. So I think one of the things people get hung up on with an IP address is that it's uh, it's like you know one nine two dot one six eight. That's that's a a decimal representation or a convenient representation for people. As a 
computers see it as ones and zeros, right? It, it really is 32 bits. Uh, so it's a string of 32 ones and zeros. And, and when you see like a slash 24 or, or even a, a sort of a more traditional 255.255.255.0 subnet mask, what you're really saying is how many of those bits are the network and how many of those bits are what we would call the, ho- the host portion. Um, so, so a thirty, so a thirty-two bit. If you have a thirty-two bit IP address, thirty-two ones and zeros, uh, and then you have a slash sixteen, that means that the first sixteen bits define the network, and then the subsequent sixteen bits define the host or or the specific place in that network that something is going. You know, so for example, if you have a you know uh, slash sixteen, there are. 65,536 possible slash 16s. And each of those slash 16s has 65,536 possible hosts in it because there's, you know, 16 bits on one side, 16 bits on the other. That would be a subnet mask of 255.255.0.0, which if you convert to binary is 16 ones and 16 zeros. And and that's essentially all it is. It's actually really straightforward, but it, uh, a lot of people tend to get sort of mystified by the concept. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And so some some of those bits are reserved for the network, and then I guess it would be like, for example, on my personal computer, my ISP or the router or or something local will will grab one of those uh, sixty five thousand or rough. So so that's actually predetermined. Your ISP has a has a block of IPs just like we're talking about. So maybe your ISP has a bunch of forward slash 24s or maybe they have like uh, some of the larger providers might have like a forward slash 16 and a portion of those IPs are reserved for their customers. So Because obviously like they have a, a portion reserved for their equipment and stuff. And then so through DHCP or or static, they could assign you a, a static IP, but it's it's less common. But usually through DHCP, like they have a DHCP server you have a router that's connected to them, and then so your router asks for an IP, and then it gets leased an IP, and that that that's how that happens. It's not it's it's not really something that uh, you have control over unless you work it out directly with the ISP. And then of course, like beyond that, going from your single IP, your your single forward slash thirty two that's assigned to you into your local area network, then obviously you get like through NAT an, an entirely new I think uh, forward slash twenty four for all the devices on your local area network. Well, you could actually add it to anything you like. You can add it to a slash one if you were so so inclined, but not that you would ever need to. Right. So, but and 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 that's what network address translation does. In essence, is it converts whatever your like whatever you configure your subnet to. So, like when you have that like one nine two dot one six eight dot zero dot twenty four, whatever it is, uh, on all your devices, each has an assigned IP that's uh, specific to the local area network, and then all of that goes back through the router as a single IP, gets translated. I see. That makes a lot of sense. And we actually do this at scale too. Uh, so so almost always when dealing with V4, you might have a, a single, not usually not single, but a set of IPs that are assigned to each data center and then some NAT that goes on there. And usually like we make it very simple where the LAN IP always corresponds directly in some way to the public IP, but almost always because we're a web services company, each host is also going to have a, a public IP. I mean, depending on what their function is, but if they're a web server, then they're absolutely going to have that. And then of course with, and Tyler can get into this, but with everything moving to V6, 
then that kind of does away with all that. You don't have to have two IPs now. You just have one V6 that functions as the public and private. So like in theory, NAT is supposed to go away when V6 someday takes over. Yeah, we'll see. We will see. <laughs> okay. That, yeah, that'll make sense. Get, uh, the I guess the problem that NAT is addressing is that I'm connecting into my head to virtual address space, but it's like, it's a weird connection, I guess, and it might not be clear to people when I say that. But uh, effectively, it's creating like a space of IPs that are, I guess they, 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 they only have to manage everything on a local area network, and then that maps to a one specific IP address that's actually handed out to you by your internet service provider who actually owns the ASN and owns the IP addresses that are actually used to communicate between, I guess, ASNs. Correct. Yeah. Cool. Okay. And and the, so the, you know, your, your people will will people see the same three blocks of IP addresses, right? Uh, you see one nine two dot one six eight dot whatever. Uh, you'll see ten dot whatever, and you'll see perhaps less common one seventy two dot sixteen dot whatever. Those are are what's called uh, RFC nineteen eighteen addresses, and basically what they are is is by convention those three blocks of addresses nobody will route them on the internet. So at some point, people got together and said, we're going to sort of carve these three blocks of IP addresses out, and we will not route them on the internet ever. So if you were to send a 192.168.1.1 address into the internet, the routers on the internet will just dispose of it because, you know, nobody wants to actually use it. And so those, those addresses have essentially been reserved for use in, in private networks uh, and use behind NAT environments. Uh, or network address translation. And so yeah, that's why you keep seeing the same ones. But uh, perhaps a, a, an important point to note is that these are instances. The 192.168.1.whatever space at your house is completely distinct and unroutable from the 192.168.1.whatever space at my house. Sometimes, you know, you see people going, well, you know, we're on the same network and we, but you're like, well, you're not really, you're just in a, you're, you're in your own sort of virtual world. And, and so is that person and the two don't actually meet each other. Right. I guess your router would be able to notice that it's only a packet de uh, destined for the local area network just by the first like 32 or 16 bits of the 30. Yeah. And, and your router gets all the packets and, and based on like, firewall rules it, it knows what to drop or whatever everybody's got those configured most come by default like folks that aren't so into like software or networking probably just plug it in and and leave it be but everything is configurable to what the router drops and what it passes through and then once it does the address translation is how it determines like which device on the network to send it to it goes okay this is for the you know 168 blah 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 dot one or this is for dot 24 this is and that's how it does that and then the same thing is when the packets go out they go through the router and then it's on that it's on that single ip traveling through asns i think if there's one thing that would make it easier for folks confused about the internet and routing in general it's that there is finite ipv4 space right there's only a certain amount there's never going to be more um, and that's the whole purpose for v6 and then so like this understanding that the IP leaks to you by your ISP is just one in a block of, uh, of IPs, like a prefix that they own. And that is how everything else works. So in, in terms of anything else, so like larger organizations, anybody else, everything is on this main interconnected network that all works through um, BGP and ASNs. And, and every single IP is involved in that. 
So like, that's where I think people get hung up is when, after it comes to the route, like, like I got one IP from my ISP, you know, like I got an IP, but you don't actually own that IP. It's just leased to you the same way on your home network. When you like connect a new device to the Wi-Fi and you get a, a LAN IP lease to that device, right? That your, your router does the same thing as a DHCP server. It leases it a new uh, LAN IP. It's sort of that same concept, but on a, on a macro level with limited space. So how does that picture change when you move to IPv6? I would assume IPv6, the whole point is that there's more bits so that you don't actually need to do any separation at all. There's just one global space of uh, IPv6 addresses and there's no, I mean, presumably there'd still be an equivalent to ASNs for that, right? Because that would define like any number of bits that you could use on an IPv6 address for a prefix or? Well, so so because ASNs and, and IP addresses are, are divorced, it's actually the same set of ASNs. So we run, you know, AS2635, we advertise uh, IPv6 addresses as well as IPv4 addresses. Okay, that makes sense. I'm trying to, I'm trying, I keep thinking about the IP address numbers and I'm thinking like, oh, the first two are ba- it could be your ASN, but it sounds like it's just a mapping to, to that effectively. Like the ASN is something else. An ASN is, is, is a different assigned number that is used to create the ASN stack, which is how the internet routes information. The IP address is what the A or the IP address, or more appropriately, the network portion of the IP address, which we call a prefix is what the ASN advertises to its its peers saying I have reachability to this prefix so I can I can provide transit to this uh, block of you know of of IP addresses as defined by the prefix I I'm starting to see where the problems come from now because then effectively if I own a server or an if I have an ASN and I advertise that I'm able to transmit to any possible IP address prefix, then routers will start seeing me as a possible route to get there. And it could be in a completely ridiculous place. Yeah. That is perhaps the single most dangerous thing on the internet and maybe quantifies as one of the most dangerous things in the world right now. So BGP, um, I, I think I alluded to it earlier to being somewhat inelegant. It, it does not have a methodology to enforce that the set of prefixes you're advertising is A, in fact, reachable via your network, B, is owned by your network, or C, uh, is not just a complete fabrication that you've made to hijack traffic. So the vast majority of BGP hijacks, and, and, and what a BGP hijack is essentially, imagine for a moment that you, you took, uh, let's say you took Google's address space. Right, and Google's address space might be advertised as a slash sixteen. The first sort of pick as to what your a router will choose for for a, a better path is what's called a, a longest match or a more specific prefix. So, if you have an IP address that if you have a an advert an advertisement for a prefix that's a slash twenty four, and that slash twenty four is actually also encompassed by Google's slash twenty the router will pick the slash 24 route over the slash 20 because it's a more specific reference. So what has happened at numerous points in the past is that through misconfiguration or nefariousness or what have you, the somebody has advertised perhaps a more specific prefix to a major web property, let's say YouTube. Not many people can deal with the kind of traffic that YouTube gets. 
Uh, we've seen cases where, you know, one misconfiguration by a user uh, takes down an entire country, right? Because it will, you know, you, you if you take, you know, a s- Google probably sucks in more traffic than, you know, two thirds of all nations on the planet. If you, you know, if some guy at a local, you know, bank who happens to have an ASN number advertises YouTube's IP space and somehow ends up being the most, you know, the better selected path, then everybody kind of regionally will just point there. Uh, it could be everybody in the whole world points at that country. Uh, and it, it, it is essentially a, a denial of service attack for, it's, it's a denial of service attack you cause on yourself and, and the whole world. I mean, you've essentially denied service to YouTube at that point. A perhaps even more nefarious case is if, is, is a man in the middle attack. So you can advertise a route and suck in the traffic and then actually deliver the traffic, right? You can, there's nothing to say you can't deliver it. And, and, and to a certain extent, uh, the internet won't be the wiser when you do. Guys like me will see, you know, hey, why is all of, you know, suddenly all this traffic is now going to Bulgaria, you know, and, and we'll, we'll, you know, it will question why and, and maybe turn it off. And, it, and to a certain extent, it's always been honor-based. The other thing it's kind of based on is the fact that as a, a network operator, my methodology of protecting my network is to cut you off. And so, you know, if you are a bad actor and advertise IP space that's not yours, in very short order, kind of all the network engineers in the world will blacklist you and you kind of get, suddenly nobody can contact your network even for real purposes. So it's it's discouraged, but um, when it comes to like nation size actors and nation state actors, it becomes a real problem starting to get better there are certain initiatives like rpki that that authenticate that a given asn owns a given ip address and that and that the person advertising that asn and ip address are the actual people um or the is the actual organization that says it is it's a serious security hole and a serious infrastructure hole and 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 a serious risk to commerce and all sorts of things that remains with the construction of the internet wow yeah and I guess the primary problem there is that you're able to recognize ASNs that are relevant to whatever destination you're trying to receive traffic from or send traffic to. Like you you said, obviously, you know, uh, automatics, you also know Amazons. But the problem is that presumably it's usually not a single ASN that you're going to have to traverse through. It's probably several. And that could you generally probably don't know all of them. No, no. When you go international, so especially in a place like like India, for example, like uh, we have we have troubles there all the time because it's just like it's like the Wild West and like who knows, you know it's not like you can call up India ISPA and not to not to hate on India this is just an example there's a lot of places with less established infrastructure we just have a point of presence there which is why I use them as an example but you can't just like call up you know service provider A and be like hey what's going on and verify it's usually like this this whole song and dance and and like I said it's not just them we have similar problems with Milan for the same reasons in Italy uh, and, and various various other places. So um, I, I think that that's where it gets it gets weird. You know, you might see uh, ASNs, I think, shift all the time uh, when you're looking at the traffic. Is that right, Tyler? Yeah, I mean, you'll see ASNs shift. I mean, the ASN, ASNs shift constantly. I mean, there's a, um, there's a great website called uh, Ripe BG Play, which basically replays 
a constant stream of all the BGP updates that are flowing across the internet, sort of showing traffic shifts as they occur. Um, and it's thousands per second. Like it's just a, a, a constant stream of data moving. And, and all of these are ingested by all the routers on the internet, which then make decisions based on on these these BGP updates to whether or not to you know route to this direction or that direction or whatever. The other thing to remember is is that these interconnection agreements are not global. Uh, as a content provider, Automatic, we're a, a large content provider. Um, we our our mandate is to uh, get our product, which is you know blogs and websites and and e-commerce sites, uh, in front of as many eyeballs as we can. You know, much the same as Facebook and YouTube and what have you. Um, we are content providers, so we will peer with anybody essentially. You know, so we we operate in what are called uh, internet exchanges across the world, which is basically a sort of a carrier agnostic, quite literally a we call them a meet me room, where it, it literally is usually a non for profit organization that that operates a large switching infrastructure uh, at a given data center, and and, and you will peer with people, you know, so you'll have a connection to a big switch and they'll have a connection to a big switch and we'll say, okay, well, let's configure our routers to talk to each other and exchange prefixes with one another. Uh, and you'll send us data and we'll send you data. That's not necessarily how all agreements operate. So for us to reach eyeballs in Canada, we actually have to pay Bell Canada for the privilege to get a connection. Uh, and, and on some levels, you would think that Bell Canada is the country's largest uh, ISP would have a vested interest in their users having a good experience to reach content providers and thus, you know, would pair for free with content providers. They don't. They're, you know, ISPs are constantly trying to be, kind of make money on both ends uh, of the deal. So they'll they'll charge you for your internet access and then they'll charge us for your internet access. So that's 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 called uh settlement-based pairing. Where basically you have to settle, you know, the the tab, right? So I'll they'll send me you know, so many gigabits and I'll send them so many gigabits and they'll say, well, you know, you sent us 50 more gigabits than we sent you. So pay up. The internet in theory is supposed to operate as, you know, sort of one big happy family where everybody peers with everybody else. Uh, in, in, in the real world, it's a, a mishmash of agreements and commercial contracts. And sometimes it's peering over internet exchanges, sometimes, which is great. Uh, sometimes it's peering, you know, sometimes it's, it's a case of we pay, a large, a series of large network service providers to basically provide IP transit, which is we send them anything and then they'll deliver it for us. They have maintained these agreements with these local ISPs all over the planet. That's kind of it's interesting. Is that the internet probably more more business is done on the uh, about the core of the internet over beer at trade shows than uh, than is ever done in a boardroom. Because it's 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 in a large in a large case it's guys like me saying hey uh, AS. Ten thousand one. Uh, hey, you want a pair? And I'll buy you a bear. And then go. Okay, yeah, great. And let's 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 go. It's actually a hilarious thing to watch because it basically like you reach out to a network guy that you don't know, and you're like, "Hi, I'm Tyler from AS twenty six thirty five. Like, I see that you have data centers in these locations. Like, we're also there. Do you want a pair? And then they're like, "Yeah, configure your sessions. Sessions configured. Thanks for peering. It's like it's so it, it, it's so funny the way it happens and like the whole internet works like this. Tyler mentioned nonprofit internet exchanges. Actually, the largest one is right there in Seattle, the six. So the Seattle Internet Exchange is, is the largest, I think, uh, nonprofit internet exchange in the U.S. 
most of the other ones are usually paid and you have to be a customer usually of that provider to like get in the door. And it's kind of like the chicken and the egg problem because like no one wants to go on an internet exchange that don't have like a lot of good peers. So a lot of times like um, I don't want to like say any providers names, but like providers will advertise like some sort of incentive or, or like some will even like, especially if they're new, open up and be like, Hey, um, you know, we'll give you, it's like rent. We'll give you like the first month free uh, for like the space and power. And then like, you'll also be on our awesome internet exchange. And that's the idea is to like get people on there to attract more customers. And then like your internet exchanges, like um, Equinix, for example, they're like massive and they have everybody on there. So you have to pay like a hefty, hefty fee to peer on Equinix internet exchanges. And then, and then like, People try to do all these backdoor deals if they're not like customers of Equinix, but you have a customer that's like if you let's say let's say you're a company, Ryan, and you own space in Equinix and I want to peer there. I'll make an agreement with you and then like you essentially peer with Equinix and then I pay you. It's almost like a subletting thing. Right. Yeah. Uh, So and they so that's how they kind of control that access. Because, yeah, presumably you don't want just a random list of like ASNs all the time. I was wondering if the strategy was to sort of do it heuristically based on location or with people you know, and I guess that answers the question where you try to explicitly form connections with people that you're familiar with and in locations that you know will be better for your users. And also that's going to be mutually beneficial. Sort of like Tyler was saying, um, there is that settlement peering where somebody pays the difference, but I most I think, and, and Tyler can correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe most of our peering is based on just like, traditional, like, it seems like it's going to be good for both of us, but people cut off peers all the time. Like if, if I'm sending a hundred gigabits through your network and uh, you're sending like three gigabits through mine, you're going to be like, okay, like this isn't, this isn't working out. And they'll just, you know, uh, deestablish their sessions. Folks leave internet exchanges all the time for the same reasons. They don't feel like they're getting the benefit. Like uh, we get all the emails from the six, for example, and, and folks leave the six all the time for various reasons. <laughs> it's a, yeah, it's, it is a big topic. It is a, uh, it's hard. It's sometimes hard to wrap your mind around the scale of it. People tend to think of the internet as, uh, I think probably because there was a, a metaphor as like the, the internet superhighway or the information superhighway. It makes it sound like there's more planning than there is. Uh, it, it really is what it, it, it says. It is an internet. It is an interconnected uh, interconnection of networks. Each network is an ASN. It's an autonomous system. And all of those, uh, and they, they, you know, where they touch other networks is where traffic is transited. And it's those, those interconnection points, those connections between network one and network two and network two and network three that sort of form the crux of the internet as we know it. And, and, and where those interconnections occur is dictated by so many factors. It's uh, geopolitics, uh, geography. India is an interesting case because... Um, if you bring up India on a map, there is essentially no way to get into India overland. So you have this massive continent with a billion people on it and, you know, a huge economic power, uh, uh, upcoming economic power um, with, you know, billion eyeballs that we want to send data to. The problem is, is there's no, inter- there's no overland fiber into India. Uh, on one side of India, you have Pakistan and Afghanistan, which is a mountainous region, war-torn and strife uh, that you can't drive, you know, uh, reliably drive a fiber line through. Um, on the other side of India, you have the Himalayas, right? Try driving a piece of fiber through the Himalayas. So India is, is again, we have this huge continent that is statistically, by the internet standards, closer to Marseille 
in France than it is to China, right? Now, China is, you know, as the crow flies, China is like right there. But it's really, really hard to get to China from India because you have to cross the Himalayas to do it. So what you have to do to get to China from India is go to Singapore and up to Hong Kong and then over to mainland China. This It's one of those examples of ways where geography and geopolitics really dictate how things flow on the internet and why certain places like India is a good example can have really rotten connectivity uh, for a place that really shouldn't, you know, in, in theory with that many people, you should have really solid infrastructure, but, but doesn't because of the, the geography of where it is. Aside from the geography in general too, and this is one of the things that like tripped me out and blew my mind when I started working on this and, and really getting into it was if we had, let's say, and this is for like, let's say internal folks, right. Connecting to the nearest automatic data center. Okay. So like if they lived in California is a massive state, like lengthwise, right. You know, to get from like San Diego to like Oregon will take you all day. Okay. So that was like the first thing that, that blew my mind was when we had somebody in San Diego and the nearest data center is LA but they're not being connected there. They're being connected in Denver or they're being connected in San Jose. And it's like, why? You know, we I know for a fact that there's a fiber path between, you know, San Diego and LA through various providers. But the nature of these, these ASNs and BGP and the way things route, that might not actually be the quickest path. Even though, like Tyler was saying in his example with India and China, you're like, it's right there, right? It's a it's an hour drive, two hour drive or whatever. But and instead, it's going a state away, or it's going to the, you know, eighteen hours away to to uh, San Jose. So that's that's like something that that kind of blew my mind at first. It's like you would think that logically, no matter what, it would go to the closest location, but it it doesn't always in terms of because that's not actually the closest in terms of like uh, shortest path or routing or whatever it is based on the sessions that are configured or the networks involved. It comes down to these like decentralized relationships between random people which may not work out for the best shortest path like speed of light wise distance that you might want if you're in san diego or something like that that yeah yeah that's the peering side of it but there's also like the transit side of it right so like obviously if you're a new network and you're getting started out or whatever like nobody's going to want to peer with you you know because you're, you're you're just getting started so you purchase transit from uh, tier one or tier two providers etc and then you know so like these larger carriers will then deliver tra- your traffic for a, for a fee to all members on their network. And that's like, um, that's a traditional relationship is is these, yeah, so like a tier one provider is a, a provider that can reach everybody in its geographic region without paying another provider for transit. And then a tier two provider can do the same thing, but they can't do it without paying a tier one provider to like make part of the link. And then it goes down from there. So like, and, and we purchase, uh, I think everybody purchases transit from like the largest providers. And I think the main reason for that is that they're almost always international, you know? So like the, especially the carriers that, that we purchase transit from, they're available in the U S they're available in Europe, they're available in Asia. And, and that gives us, Tyler talked about any cast being sort of a hack, right. And, and how it works and advertising the same IP in different places. Well, we're using their networks at various locations around the world to help to, to like utilize their internal routing, right. And to, to pop out at sort of any point and figure out the best path in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases. Yeah. I see. 
Almost sounds like a system I wouldn't trust people to plan. So <laughs> maybe maybe this is the best way it could have ended up. I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I I don't I don't think if you were planning it, you'd plan it this way. Right. Right. So that. Yeah. That brings me to like another thing that I had written down, which is well, we've talked a little bit about the problems with the networking stack, and I'm the history seems like more or less clear in the sense that it wasn't planned actually, and it had to arise through through all of these different almost emergent ways that actually had nothing to do with what sort of made the most sense from some sort of top-down design sort of perspective. So uh, I wanted to ask, if you were to go through and actually architect it such that it worked well in the best possible way by some metric, maybe in terms of like speed of connection or reliability of connection or something, what, what, were, what would the actual changes look like from that perspective? How would you start architecting things would it be purely spatially? I mean, obviously, like you said, there's many factors, but I wanted to get at sort of where the problems are and how you would solve them. I think uh, I think we have the tools to solve them. Technically, it's it's more of uh, herding cats. It's getting everybody on board with it. For example, uh, I, I sort of mentioned that BGP is is sort of infinitely extensible, and, and it really is. You can carry all kinds of really rich information in BGP. And it is, you know, uh, providing a richer set of metrics by which to to route information would go a long way to to sort of maximizing internet performance, and as well as things like uh, like like I mentioned RPKI and some of these initiatives to provide like encrypted BGP uh, transit and 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 triple uh, A around BGP authentication. So saying that you know this person I'm pairing with is actually the person I think it is. Those things are all technically doable. It just takes it takes a really long time to get everybody on board with it. And, and we've actually had a few instances where like our PKI has caused serious outages on the internet because they you know uh, they lost the feed from ripe that, that gives the certificates, uh, that RPK is the verify it. And all of a sudden, you know, a tier one carrier said, Hey, we can't verify anybody's, uh, IP addresses and just shuts down. That, that, that definitely causes a problem. Your average person notices, you know, those, those will cause massive outages. And when you see, sometimes when you see, uh, you know, something in the news like, hey, Reddit and Google and YouTube and everybody is down right now. Yeah, usually it's because a guy like me screwed up. <laughs> but uh, network engineers, when we break, we break big. But yeah, it, it, there there are definite ways to improve it. There techno technologically to a certain extent. I mean, there are ways to you could make BGP better. There are ways you could make uh, network peering better. But I think perhaps the biggest piece of it would be simply to, if you could get everybody sort of reading off the same manual with regards to say like BGP communities, like if they were, you know, if there were more established communities and everyone configured their routers to use communities the same way, it, you could make the network much more predictable uh, and thus require a lot less care and feeding and, and allow you to do a lot more deep optimization of the network, which we can't now. I mean, you know, like I said, it's, it's spooky action at a distance. There are also um, things afoot to incur, allow better source-based routing I think I mentioned earlier that that the the only metric in BGP is ASN path length, right? Is the number of ASNs, the stack of ASNs that you have to go through. And that's really the only metric. Um, and so if I want to influence how another organization reaches me, I have very few tools with which to do that. And one of the, basically the only tool I really do have is 
the path I don't want them to reach me over, I could either stop advertising my prefixes on that path, which is is not cool. That's sort of destructive. But what I can also do is I can um, prepend, which is I can basically add my own ASN to the path multiple times. So instead of it being two ASNs long, now it's 12 ASNs long. And that basically says, okay, well, we're not going to send it to you because you have, uh, you know, 12 and they'll pick a different path. But we can't provide, all we can do is sort of discourage a path. We can't say, hey, here's the best path. Here's the the way you really should reach us. There are programs or or perhaps proposals afoot to to support source-based routing. But again, you know, we're into this new protocols or new methods of doing things requires new hardware. And then it's a chicken and egg thing where, you know, you don't, nobody has the hardware, so nobody implements the, the protocol and nobody buys the new hardware because they don't need to use the protocol. So it's a, uh, there are definite ways to improve it, but it's more around perhaps participation in industry bodies like IETF and uh, RFPs and and whatnot and the IEEE that will get us there, not necessarily any great technical implementation. That was the extent, that was the extended answer. The real answer is there's only like a couple handfuls of network engineers and they're all super smart guys, but very stubborn with like their own set of ideas, each, each and every one. I'll t- I'll t- <laughs> Not so much you, Tyler, but you know the type. Yeah, well, it, you know, it's, um, I guess network engineering as a profession is, is, is a, we, we have the perhaps honor, but also problem with being specialists. You know, I, I have at times said that I, you know, people go, oh, you're an IT guy. And I go, well, kind of. Um, you know, if you ask me to fix, uh, if you ask me to fix your, your, you know, your windows, you know, or machine, I probably would have no idea what to do. Network engineering is, is one of the pieces of computer science that are, are, that really is an engineering discipline. Um, what we do every day and all day is, is very much engineering and, and there's stylistic component to it. You, you, you're, you have to dig in pretty tight to get there. Uh, so there's not very many of us. Hmm. So my understanding based on all of this is that DNS is another layer that sits on top and it is effectively a server that you can talk to in order to map domain names to actual IP addresses that you can connect with. So it's, it's a way of performing that function between those two, those two things. And then once you have the actual IP address, then you can actually perform a connection. And presumably that's why, like you, you made a comment about how static IPs are more rare nowadays, which is probably why the web tries to be, you know, stateless and everything so that if, if for, for whatever reason, if an IP changed or something, but you still wanted it to map to the same domain name, somebody would send the same request and then it would route through the DNS every single time. And then the IP would just be requeried from, from the domain name. Is that roughly? That's 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 a, pr- a pretty accurate representation of it. Um, DNS, maybe actually in in the United States, it's important to remember too that um, that DNS is not is not integral to the internet. DNS is utilized specifically for humans to be able to remember what they're doing. The internet and and the network at at, at large depends on IP addresses and depends on BGP and and. and ones and zeros and, and binary data dns is a is sort of a human affectation that that is used to make life better on the internet for for us and and it is very much what you say is it's it's a a server you query that gives you a mapping from an ip address to a 
a name. Um, I think I think one of the more interesting things about DNS, that, like I guess I'll go short on it, is people don't realize is they 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 tend to read uh, DNS names backwards, and so you know uh, when you read uh, www portal.wordpress.com you're actually reading the dns name in reverse it's really as as the computer understands it's actually com.wordpress.portal.www so it's actually inverted uh, and read read from right to left um and the reason being that's the stack uh of dns servers that have to be queried so when you query a DNS, if there's if there's two different types, uh, but the one most people are uh, comfortable with is what's called a recursive DNS, which you know you give it a query and it it gives you an answer, right? But that DNS uh, execute that DNS server, like your ISP server, executes what's called an iterative query, and an iterative DNS query goes first. It goes okay. Well, what's the last thing in the URI, and, and, which is like .com. Right, and it goes okay. Well, I have a, a static mapping of the root servers for .com, which is which is our, our well-known IP addresses, and it will query the .com servers for WordPress.com, and WordPress.com it will say okay, well WordPress's name server is at this IP address, and then it will query WordPress's for portal.wordpress.com and it will say okay well portal is actually you know in this data center so send it to another dns server and that will go okay well www.wordpress.portal.wordpress.com is this ip address and then that will all get sort of concatenated back together and sent back to the user so i think that's one of the more interesting things with dns is people always kind of read them backwards because that's people read left to right but strictly speaking they're actually blocks that are read from right to left okay what's the reason for doing it in that way why not just have one hop where you just there's a single server that maps names to ip addresses is what's the idea behind the strategy it would just be fantastically large um it would be it, yeah it would just be ungainly how big it is you know and, and also and with no way to delegate control so no way to delegate pieces of it to different organizations i mean we want to control our own dns mappings as as a as a dns uh, registrar and a, a company that runs on the internet you know trying to centralize that authority uh, would be pretty hard dns actually it has its problems right one of one of which is that it's a, a kind of slow and b not historically encrypted although that's rapid that's yeah. rapidly changing yeah dnssec is is relatively new yeah, and um, and so that's that's led to some sort of interesting things with DNS, like the monetization of it. You know, you probably know that there's a there's dozens of providers where you can use as your recursive DNS for your house, right? You can use uh, like Cloudflare at one dot one dot one dot one, or you know your ISP's DNS, or your um, or Google's at eight dot eight dot eight dot eight. And all of these companies actually want you to use their DNS server because then then they can mine information, right? Because they know that. Such and such an IP address, right? Brian Fleur's e- email ad- or IP address is requesting data on or is requesting a DNS record for this thing. Uh, the other thing they could do is they can tinker with the response they give you. So some ISPs have been doing things like, you know, when they see a DNS request for one ad network, they'll substitute the IP address of a different ad network and serve their own ads instead by essentially injecting them into the the, the IP stream. Um, and that's 
that's super shady, but it, but it happens way more often than you think. And so Google has really, I think Google's probably Rudy, the the chief sort of driver of DNS sec right now because they've I know they've driven DNS over HTTPS really hard into Chrome. Yeah. It, it is encrypting it so that parties in the middle can't view or modify the DNS system. And there there are technical problems with that because it it, it causes that centralization, which isn't yeah. super great. Yeah, we see problems with with folks using DNSSEC all the time. Like lookups not going where they're expected, uh, things hanging entirely. It's it's definitely not a worked out problem. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. Is that DNS? I alluded earlier to have it having particular importance in the United States because um, recently there was a uh, just before I guess uh, the administration changed to the Biden administration. ISPs in the United States had used their provision of DNS to qualify as an information service as opposed to a telecommunication service and thereby escape Title II classification by the FCC and not have to apply net neutrality. And to you know a network engineer like me, that concept is farcical, right? A DNS is, is you could, your ISP would never, never has to give you DNS. And in fact, you know, you people who use their ISPs DNS to a certain extent are a little mad, perhaps, or or perhaps just not not really comprehending what what kind of hijinks ISPs get up to. You know, that's it's a it's a, a farcical argument that you know, oh, because ISPs give you DNS, that all of a sudden, oh yeah, they're they're information services, they're not telecommunication services. They're absolutely one hundred percent telecommunication services. What you're paying for is bits go in, bits go out not any of the other stuff or at least you shouldn't be but it gets it gets muddy and they you know you can you can snow lawmakers on it because understanding the minutia of it is is you know left to to technical people but yeah it's it's it, it, that's an interesting piece that you, you kind of have to get your head around because it does have serious policy implications for uh like the future of things like net neutrality you know like most people when they set up their home network they plug the router in and then they connect to it, you know, nobody connects pretty much in their own home via hardline anymore, except for like the serious folks. Most most people just spin up a, a default Wi-Fi network and and go on in, and especially in the older generations. Like I know, for example, any of my older relatives, like they don't even change the SSID default name or anything like that. You know, so I think most people just kind of plug that in and have that network going. And then their devices by default will, will use the router's IP as the DNS server and then that's how the, the and the ISP of course loves that like Tyler said and and that's what they're gunning for they're gunning for you to not reconfigure anything so let this be a tip for anybody that's listening to this if you're on Linux or Mac OS look at your Etsy re, uh, resolve.conf file and uh, and Ryan maybe you can direct folks to the Windows location because I have no idea where to change your DNS on Windows it seems like it was a lot easier to be exposed to this stuff before I don't know why it's necessarily changed. I guess it's been occupied by other forms of programming or web stuff or whatever that people are getting into nowadays. But uh, for anybody who's interested in learning more about networking, possibly following the path of a network engineer, I wanted to ask about how would they start doing that? What 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 is the day one thing that they should do? I know you said, you mentioned the certification that you got, Tyler, but you said it's like not as valuable now. So what's what's the alternative path for people who actually want to contribute to this field? 
it's it is still largely uh my path uh which is to say you have to kind of work your way up through it start at the bottom and you know start generally start at a small company and kind of work your way to the top i think perhaps the 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 worst part of it is that there is no I'm I'm called a network engineer. Technically, in Canada, I can't be called a network engineer because there, you know, I don't have an iron ring. I can't. Uh, I'm not a professional engineer because uh, there is nowhere. There's no university course for network engineering, right? There's no. It's not like computer science where you can, you know, go and study at a, at a great faculty somewhere and uh, and learn CS. It, it, it is uh, very much a experience driven field. And the only way to get that experience in a lot of cases is to get the experience, right? So that's that's kind of sucks, right? It's not a great answer because it uh, is to say start small and work your way up. But it's, perhaps until somebody establishes a curriculum and maybe establishes a, a proper engineering school for network engineering, um, it's really the only way to do it. If your listeners are software developers, software-defined networking and network orchestration, that is programmatically doing things on the network, working in APIs that are you know given in routers and and using things like VXLAN, which are really modern ways to do networking and drive networking, um, are really kind of the future of of networking. I mean there's there's always going to be space for old diehards like me who who run cables and, and fiber and connect routers together. But I think really the future of, of networking really is very much in the development and, and orchestration and software defined space. And, and I, I think, you know, if I was encouraging someone now, it would be to learn the heck out of things like Ansible and uh, Kubernetes. Kubernetes is another great one, right? And and these Kubernetes, you know, puts its feet in a lot of different places. But one of the biggest ones is networking and and getting your head around it is 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 certainly something that uh, people can do and 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 have a great job prospect through. I would add on to that and say for anybody looking to get started today at home, like obviously if you have a few computers lying around, that's great. But you don't really need it um, as long as you have a computer and a router. You can start uh, playing with some of your network. Uh, configurations and seeing how things work, like set up a, a you know a server of some sort and try to access it from outside of your local area network. You know that's that's kind of like step one, getting your feet wet. And then, like Tyler said, with everything moving towards, so like if you read a book on on Docker or I mean Kubernetes in general, which which sort of runs on on Docker as the primary underlying system, although it doesn't have to, you can download like the the Minikube playground just on your computer. And go from there. And you can spin up like multiple network, multiple networks, multiple like uh, containers, hosts, cubelets, like everything. And and everything is sort of moving towards that because uh, companies at scale they tend to look towards the most established in the game, and that's pretty much Google, right? Nobody's larger than Google. Nobody's running more stuff than Google. And they built this Kubernetes system, which essentially treats. Uh, data centers as a resource, right? So basically what it does is it combines, instead of like a traditional setup where you have a bare metal host, like A is a web host and B is a database host and web host C is an API host. Instead of that, it basically pools all of your computing power and then makes it available in in the form of kubelets and pods and and stuff like that. And that is, I think, uh, Tyler's 100% right. And that's that's where everything's going. And I think for folks that come from handmade that are, deep in software and, and really knowledgeable about that stuff. If you're looking to get networking, I would say definitely first play around with the devices that, and your router that you have at home. 
And then like, if you're looking towards a career path, like if you learn Kubernetes and, and uh, God, I forget the other one you said there, Tyler, but it, I mean, if you learn Kubernetes and you learn how Kubernetes works, I, I think you could probably be hired anywhere to do anything because everybody's trying to run it and uh, nobody knows the depth of knowledge like that you would expect for something like what you work on. Um, I just don't think it's there. Yep. Great. Yeah, that's super helpful. Do software engineers at all do things that you very strongly dislike or hate while working on top of the tech that you that you uh, that you manage? And how does somebody uh, stop doing anything you hate? And how do they how do they use the knowledge about the network to actually inform what they're doing from a software perspective more effectively? Even if it's not working on the network level necessarily, but how could you know web programmer think about this stuff and actually employ it? I think the the I actually did uh, I I I thought about a response for this and I think the thing the software developers do that kind of drives me nuts is um, make the assumption of constant connectivity and so they treat the network as this static resource that will always be there and will frequently do things like ignore doing keep alive's and ignore doing connection checking and connection pooling and you know there there are a number of concepts. Uh, with regards to building resilient networking into your application stack that are are largely ignored because because I think probably the network is seen as a black box and it's just you know feed bits in bits come out and 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 so it is firewalls love to do what what we call connection reaping so if you um, if you establish a connection through a firewall the firewall will open a hole for you and allow data to go in and out. And if you don't use that data for a little while or that connection for a little while, the firewall will sort of silently close it for you. And then the next time you go to use it, your application breaks. And, and, and I can't tell you how many times I've had, you know, application developers knock on my office door and say, you know, hey, Tyler, the network is down because my application broke. And and, and our, my response is, is usually like, if you don't see, you know, a lineup of people outside my door, uh, and my door is, and my door is in fact open. Then the network isn't down. But the the core response is is more like don't 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 develop an application that uh, assumes the network will be present at all times, and, and learn a little bit about um, what you're going through. So if you're developing an application that somebody's going to run at home, assume they're going to be on like a dodgy Wi-Fi connection, um, and that you may have to constantly check that the network is still there and is is not garbage and that you're going to be able to get connectivity uh, and then and then plan around it like so plan uh, a routine into your application to reconnect uh, gracefully without maybe blowing out your session or losing all your data or, or, or what have you and that's that's probably the biggest pet peeve for me as a network guy is, is like these knocks I get on the door for people going the network's down you go oh, no, so that app was just really developed poorly yeah I, I mean if you're an app developer it just it just don't ignore the network and and, and don't assume that it's always going to be there yeah, yeah for me for me i don't it, it's not so much net it is kind of networking but it's just like resource usage in general like if more folks could be like it's so like if you're on your own right you, you probably know this ryan like you run your own website or if you run your own application on the web you get concerned with cost real quick when you're when you're going to DigitalOcean and you're like, oh my god, two terabytes is going to cost me eight hundred dollars a month. Like, you know what's going on or to rent a server? But it, it, when you're a developer at a company, it seems like you're just like, yeah, but I, I don't know, buy more hard drive. Like, it, my application needs you know sixteen terabytes. Like, it is what it is. Deploy it everywhere. So I I think I think if uh, folks would be a little less piggy and a <laughs> a little more 
cognizant that like the stuff is actually sitting in a data center somewhere and has to be put there and has to be purchased and isn't free, I think it would make a better experience all around for like companies in general, but then also of course, like less bloaty for the end user too, right? Because now you have some crappy two gigabyte node application that like sucks anyway, serving stuff. So I, I think I think the handmade principles in general could apply both to like networking and application development at like the corporate level. My uh, my pet peeve in that one is the like uh, 200 megabyte soft phone application. Right. Right. Uh, or or, or uh, like, you know, the banking app that does essentially nothing on my phone is like 350 megabytes of my limited phone storage. And I and I, I, don't, I don't profess to know why I think it's probably like too much usage of frameworks and not. Uh, nearly enough hand tuning but yeah i was actually gonna that's that's really frustrating yeah i was gonna <laughs> say that earlier you were talking about like schooling and education for computer science and i was i was going to make a comment that actually those are no good and i would give uh, i would give people trying to get into software development the same idea that you did which is go start working on your own projects like college is not going to handle it for you yeah, yeah. so yeah uh, yeah well and that, that'll show that'll show you my uh my software development chops here but the um uh, I, I feel like in 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 some regards, and I, I suspect your listeners probably feel the same way, given the the name of the podcast. But it's um, uh, there's a lot of sort of genericized plug it together software development and network development to that extent, right? Uh, you know, I can't tell you how many times you said the the stuff that annoys me about developers, the the, the stuff that annoys me perhaps about corporate managers is that there's the the theory of what i call the the firewall fallacy or the or the magic box um and people think that you know i have a problem to solve and instead of engineering my way out of that problem i'm just going to buy a new magic box and then you have care and feeding and then you have you know everybody's trying to uh get rent seeking so you got like a you have to pay you know a constant fee for some sort of application update every like two weeks uh, and it it leads to you know what I kind of call hedge networks, which is like you know people have that hedge, and if you don't take the the hedge trimmer to it and knock it back a little bit, it kind of overgrows your whole yard, and, and and that happens that happens constantly in networks, right? Is is people just stick because because it is a system designed for interconnection, people will just glom things onto it all all day every day and, and expect it to continue to work and, and and not put any oversight or not any thought into how it actually goes together. I spent a career with an axe, basically chopping pieces out of people's networks because it, it you know, as I said, I, I specialize in ultra high reliability and it's hard to get a reliable network when it's, it's just slapdash and pushed together and, and no thought was given to it. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there are definite ways to improve your life with regards to networking. One of them is buy less stuff. I think that's what, Ryan, I think that's what you did when you showed up to work, right? You just started going through the engine programming tools and just like, don't need this, don't need that, don't need this. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, same same path. I'm just I'm just joking. Yeah, yeah. well, it, it's, in a, it's very similar because getting started with game engine, well, if you start wanting to make games and you start with a game engine tool, you, you start you start realizing the limitations of them and then you end up throwing throwing things out. Oh, I see. But you were talking about it from the other perspective. <laughs> I can, yeah, 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 it's okay. It's all, it's all, it's all good. I know you were probably just thinking about what Tyler said, but yeah. One thing I wanted to say before we wrap it up um, is uh, both things that you said for software people to actually like take into account when they're working in their own field is it's both very much in line with the handmade principles of don't think abstraction down, but use the abstraction as a tool, but th- but know about the bottom layers like. 
the idea of not treating the network as like an always persistent thing. That's sort of the impression I get if I'm thinking about TCP, right? It's like you open a connection and now it's like the stable resource that you have, like you allocated memory from the operating system or something. And it's like, it feels like that. So, I mean, it's, it's useful to understand that the abstraction is a lie effectively. It's a light, it's, it's the tool on top, but it's not, it's not the point. So yeah. So that, actually here's the real last thing I have to say. Uh, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. It was really informative. I learned a lot and I'm sure everybody who's going to be listening will have learned a lot as well. So thank you guys so much. Really appreciate having you guys on. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Handmade Network podcast. You can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time.